Hi everyone and welcome back to another episode of Liminal Space. Today I'm in discussion with Chips McAnulty. From his early days in the 1970s protesting in the streets of Sydney against the Vietnam War and being arrested at the very first Mardi Gras, Chips has made a career from his provocative art, writing and activism and his weapons of choice are generally screen printing, graphic design and radical poster art. Chips is also a journalist and government advisor and for the past 40 years has been very active in supporting Aboriginal art and artists and using his own art to bring attention to injustices and inequalities experienced by Aboriginal Australians, especially in the field of health. Chips currently divides his time between Australia and Palermo, the capital city of Sicily in Italy, which is where he and I met a few years ago, getting to know each other pretty much while drinking nondescript glasses of red wine. His art is exhibited in museums, galleries, and private collections around the world, but you're more likely to see Chips walking the streets, slapping up his posters and artwork in a no-frills fashion that perfectly describes Chips and his general approach to his work and his life. He's a very generous man with a big heart, and it's a big pleasure to welcome Chips McAnulty to Eliminal Space. Hi, Chips. Hi, David. How are you? Yep, yep. <laughs> Good. So you're in you're in Alice Springs, the, pretty much the centre of Australia right now. Yeah, I've been here for nearly three years with a one side trip to Palermo, and um, until the general shutdown, a bit of travel around Australia. Um, but yeah, basically based in the central deserts area of Australia. Yeah, um, I wanted to start really. You've had such a colourful and and full life um, to to tell us about where it all started. Um, what was life like as a as a child, and what was your upbringing like? I, I grew up in a sort of semi rural area out sort of northwest of Sydney, um, just as it was starting to be taken over by suburbs. Um, and um, I, I think I think the real change in my life happened when it was 1966 when uh, my father was doing a PhD at the London School of Economics and um, for the middle year of it, me, my sister and my mum uh, took a boat to uh, Europe, uh, to Portsmouth um, and spent a year or nearly a year in London and travelling around Europe and I think why that was important is that um, you know, for those of people who may be watching this who don't understand, you know, Australia in the 1950s and 60s in particular was extraordinarily monolingual, um, very Anglo, um, or perhaps Anglo-Irish because I come from Irish stock originally. Um, and, you know, people didn't know much about the, the, the rest of the world. Balancing that, of course, there was sort of, you know, huge migration into Australia, especially from Southern Europe, um, Greece, Italy, um, in particular. Uh, oh, and, and yeah, later on other countries as well, in the, you know, like Lebanon, but that was, you know, a decade or so later. Um, but, you know, while I was in London, you know, mid 60s, I guess it was, I wasn't really aware of this, but it was swinging London at the time. Um, but also, politicised um, throughout Europe. It was just before, you know, May 68 in Paris and France, for example, and the um, invasion of Czechoslovakia by the then Soviet Union. And we did a lot of travel. So, you know, I was there 
realizing there were other languages in the world other than English, you know, which I sort of vaguely knew. My mother taught French at high school, um, but that was about it. Um, and then being exposed to different alphabets like Greek alphabet on the boat going over um, and learning that and then later learning the Russian alphabet. And we traveled a lot, as I mentioned, uh, throughout the uh, British Isles, including being in Dublin for the uh, 50th anniversary of the Irish Rebellion. Um, and then one, in the summer holidays, we drove, um, before this was a thing really, we drove from London to Rome, sorry, London to Moscow to Rome and back to London um, over six weeks. And that was sort of quite extraordinary in terms of uh, you know, traveling through East Berlin and East Germany, Poland, Soviet Union, Czechoslovakia, um, Austria, Italy, France, you name it. Um, and that was just a huge eye opener. And um, then coming back to Australia, we're already in 1966, there was a lot of debate in the UK around things like Vietnam. And that was starting to intensify in 67 when we got back. Um, which led me you know, quite early by 1968, going to street demonstrations. Um, and while I was overseas also, yeah, I don't know if I know how this happened, but you know, <laughs> I started collecting posters um, and you know, urged my mother to take photographs of posters, you know, if they were you know, not, not collectible. Um, so I think probably early 68, uh, mid 68 probably, I got involved with a group called the High School Students Against the War in Vietnam, whose nickname was Student Underground. And then I started learning to print posters. And in fact, my first poster was produced in uh, January 1969. Um, so I've been, I guess, in a way, doing posters, you know, for 50 odd years in one form or other, as you mentioned, you know, in, in different formats in terms of, you know, these days now it's a lot of it's online stuff, but it's also over the years involved murals and banners and laying out and designing newspapers and brochures and books um, and T-shirts. I think, imagine how many T-shirts over the years. And um, so, yeah, I think 66 was a sort of, you know, I was a 12-year-old and in, in lots of ways it, it shifted my life enormously. Um, and in, in a curious kind of way, as a 12-year-old, I got around that thing a lot of other Australians my era did in their late teens or early 20s when they'd go to London and hang out in Earl's Court and stuff like that um, and do a bit of Europe and so on. I'd sort of got that travel well and done and then basically didn't do any more overseas travel apart from a couple of brief things in, in the 70s, but basically didn't leave the country until about 93 or something like that. So was that your, like, did your parents make a conscious decision to travel with you when you're young to, to expose you to these sorts of things? Or was it a holiday or was it sort of, yeah, oh, educational? No, went, what was the idea? No, we, we went to school. I went to um, comprehensive high school in, um, um, called, uh, what was it called? Shit. I can't remember the name of the school. I'll, I'll remember it later. <laughs> Uh, and my sister went to primary school. Um, so, you know, schooling kept happening. 
and that was sort of weird being at a school in London. I mean, the kids were really, you know, the other 12-year-old kids, a lot of them were really politicised because most of them were working class or black or Jewish, you know, it was about, and nearly all working class. Um, and um, so it was a really interesting school to go to. It was called Woodbury Down Comprehensive, I remember now. <laughs> um, and uh, so we would, you know, do the school things and either catch a bus and a truck, you know, the underground or sometimes walk to school. Um, and it was actually while I was there, there was a, a, a Russian woman there who heard that we were going to drive to Moscow. She was pretty weirded out by that. But, you know, I had sort of a dozen Russian lessons with her before we went. And so I was sort of always pushed to the front of the queue and so on to buy bread or, or, or vodka um, on behalf of my parents, of course. <laughs> uh, <coughs> so, um, yeah, and as I said, it was just quite, it was something I didn't realise in full till um, 2014, 15, when I was living more or less full time in Palermo, um, that I started remembering, you know, the uh, Maltese and Italian, uh, Southern Italian market gardeners in the region I grew up as a kid, um, where, you know, speaking of anything, speaking anything non-English at school was just not tolerated. Um, Whereas now you've got so much more diversity in schools in Australia, um, where you know you, you have some schools, you know, uh, where there's you know dozens of languages spoken by you know home languages by the kids at school. So what was that like coming back after that trip back to Australia, back to let's say uncultured Australia and Chips as you know a, a teenager, <laughs> and was it a, a, a sort of a reverse culture shock coming home and and. Uh, how did you feel? Um, I don't remember it as that. I, I think, you know, I, I was fortunate at, at school is that, you know, I did okay at sport and, you know, I did scholastically, you know, academically, I didn't have huge sort of problems getting through and, and so on. Um, but no, I don't think it was a huge culture shock because, you know, I still was coming home and back to the sort of little weatherboard cottage we'd lived in forever. Um, but I think the thing that did start changing, as I mentioned before, was um, initially, you know, Vietnam and the impact that was happening um, on lots of young Australians, whether they were, um, you know, about to be called up or not. Uh, but it sort of, I, I think it opened Australia up in lots of ways to considering critically um, the outside world. You know, before it was always, um, you know, back the empire, send troops to Gallipoli, send troops to, you know, wherever in World War II, um, and then to Korea, and Vietnam was on once again. But at that stage, there was a much broader awareness and cognizance of you know why are we involved in other people's wars which we still are you know we've still got troops in bloody you know iraq and afghanistan and so on um and you know which is palpably obscene so we haven't learnt the lessons but certainly that period is when i sort of and, and having sort of 
leftist parents. I mean, they weren't... Um, well, my father had been expelled from the Labour Party back in the early 50s over the communist referendum. Um, but having left his parents who you know, were critical of the world, who encouraged, uh, you know, mum was an historian, my father was a lawyer, but encouraged us to think about the world around us and beyond our front gates, beyond the school gates and so on. Mm. And so they were extremely tolerant of me in the late 60s, early 70s of quite regularly taking time off school to go to demonstrations. Um, and that broadened over time, you know, um, from just the war, you know, it then became uh, involvements in, you know, sort of things like um, women's rights, Aboriginal rights, and, you know, towards the end of that period, um, you know, up until um, I left school, you know, environmental action was starting in, in very small ways. So when I started uni, which was in 72, um, within a fairly short period, I gravitated to a place called the Tin Sheds, um, more formally known as the Sydney University Art Workshop, and then got involved with screen printing posters big time to the point when I dropped out in early 74, I still squatted on campus. Um, printing posters just about every day of the year or helping other people print posters. And I lived in a little loft, which had room for a single mattress and a television. Um, and um, yeah, it was, it was a precarious existence. Um, you know, we lived on, I got five hours a week teaching screen printing. Um, so that was, I think it's $6 an hour or something, you know, so I was living on 30 bucks a week. Uh, and, but, but, full-time working in pretty unholy work conditions, you know, with fumes and solvents and so on, you know, quite unhealthy, quite carcinogenic in, in retrospect. Um, but uh, so yeah, that, that's how I got involved in being involved in graphics. And I mean, you talked about it as being, you know, art stuff earlier, but I think I've also, always seen myself in one way or another as a propagandist and you know propaganda is seen by some people as a dirty word i don't think it is you know propaganda is about pers persuading people whether it be with a poster or a slogan or a t-shirt or a film um of of other views to, to take in the world um and um you know some of the people who revile you know propaganda are very often the ones that control the means of information. In other words, the means of propaganda. Um, but when people have accused me of being a propagandist, I sort of say, yeah, well, and <laughs> that's what I've been involved with. So you're saying you've got a, you've got a message, you've got a cause, you've got something you want to say, you've got something you, you would like to see change, and then you use your art or your graphics or your, to, to, to push your message out there yeah as opposed to yeah. just art for the sake of of being enjoyed yeah and, and it can be both of course you know there, there's times you know i've probably about three or four times in my life i've produced something as a graphic that will last long after i'm dead and it, it works you know like it, it's a, an image that resonates at the time and lives beyond that time um and 
Sometimes they work because they're a bit horrifying and scary. Um, other times because they can be beautiful. Um, but, but the underlying thing is that there is a, a message here. Um, and, you know, for example, you know, the stuff that you would have seen in, in um, Palermo, which was based on uh, La Bulturia, the you know, ancient market area there, where I became obsessed with creating images of, you know, fruit and vegetables. You know, I like to think they were objects of beauty, but there was also about um, food miles, about sustainability, um, and, um, you know, tradition and language, you know, all, all sort of rolled into one. Mm. And I guess that's one thing I've particularly taken on once I moved to the Northern Territory in 81, although I did in Townsville start doing it with one particular group, and that is um, putting messages, you know, the, the text of messages in languages other than English. Um, and I, I think that's really important as well. So if, for example, um, you're addressing a message uh, about um, the Middle East, for example, um, you know, you try and use Arabic if you can. Likewise, if you're doing a, a poster or something about, um, well, a good example is in the recent sort of COVID-19 pandemic, is getting stuff out in as many Aboriginal languages as possible. Um, and, you know, over the years, I've probably worked uh, with close to 25 different Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander languages, you know, in the material that I've been involved in producing. Um, and that's included, um, you know, newspapers as well, making sure where you can of getting stuff out in language. And likewise with the stuff that I was doing in Palermo, it was in Italian, but wherever I possibly could, it was also in Siciliano, yeah. um, you know, the local language um, in, uh, in Sicily, which is difficult sometimes because, you know, from one village to the next, there might be a different gender um to a simple word like garlic yeah you know, or somewhere and agia in the next valley so it can be difficult um dealing with lots of different languages but i mean in the end it's about communication and you're spot on you know what good is having this message if you're not actually able to successfully be able to communicate that yeah. message across yeah. yeah yeah and um so in that like going back to to that time because I, I really think that so much about who you are today is from that sort of that 70s period of, of political, you know, demonstrations in Vietnam War, what was it like to just be, that was before I was born, what was it like to be just alive in that period, you know? And, and did, you, did you meet with, was a division? Were there people really against, against you and, and, and your others that were protesting against the war? Um, I mean, it was full on. I mean, like, you know, the, the sheds were based at Sydney University. And, you know, inside student politics, there were people who were pro-war, though they sort of tended to shut up. Um, but there were certainly people who were anti-feminists, um, um, anti-abortion. And, you know, I, I was at Sydney Uni at the same time as both Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull and um, had a few run-ins with uh, Mr Abbott um, and successfully with couple of other people 
stood in an election and um, and defeated Malcolm Turnbull. Uh, so <laughs> it was kind. For those who don't know, they went on in the last few years to become prime ministers in Australia and overthrew each other in various bizarre ways. But um, so, I mean, there were definitely right-wing groups, but also, you know, within the left, there are lots of uh, differences of view and opinion between, you know, various Trotskyist groups. And I suppose in high school, I was, uh, you know, student underground and a group called Resistance were sort of a Trotskyist tendency. That also had a lot to do um, with members of the Communist Party in, in the 70s. Um, in fact, one stage had the keys to the printing press of the, of the Communist Party. Um, and I'd be allowed to use their um, camera to do work for, for poster printing. Um, in exchange from occasionally when one of them was sick, I'd, I'd do plate making or, you know, do megs for them. And um, it's a very different Communist Party when they're sort of, I don't know, semi-anarchist guys allowed a key in to get in at any hour of the night or day. Um, also, the 70s too was massively changing because of the you know, rapid rise of the women's movement, um, Aboriginal rights movements and, um, you know, environmental stuff. Um, you know, like we were doing stuff around, um, you know, nuclear war and uranium. And at the same time, it was a very live scene with, you know, lots of music. And so I was very heavily involved with doing fundraisers for causes, but which involve a pool of the same sort of musicians each time. Um, like Mental as Anything, um, the very, very early days of Midnight Oil um, and, and bands that have long since, since disappeared into history. But you know, at the sheds, we would have regular um, dances, and likewise, we'd organise ones at Balmain Town Hall, which would attract, you know, thousands of people, uh, and Paddington Town Hall. Um, so it was, you know, <laughs> it was on for young and old, um, but especially the young, but, but sort of. Um, and in thinking about it, I worked closely for a long time with Michael Callahan, who died a few years back. Um, and we never got together to sort of sit down and write the thing that we wanted to write, which was in part a, a sort of a thank you letter to all the people who put up with us, you know, who would allow us to squat in their houses or just end up at night because, you know, that's that was the end of the day. So you'd camp on their you know, lounge or floor or, you know, with someone and um, and so there are a lot of supportive people out there that sort of put up with people like me and Michael and so on. Um, and by the end of the 70s, um, it, for quite a few of us, I mean, Michael left to go to um, Brisbane in 79, I think it was, and then I left Sydney in 1980, in part because of um, being a bit burnt out, but also just being you know, just totally poor all the time, you know, um, and, and not eating, um, you know, three hearty meals a day and so on, and sometimes going for longer periods without anything at all. Probably too much alcohol, certainly too many drugs. Um, but, uh, 
you know, that's the way it was. So in a sense, I think it probably saved my life to get out of Sydney. Yeah. Um, I was um, doing some research the last couple of days and I realised that, or I've discovered that you were also involved in the very first um, Mardi Gras um, demonstra or demonstration or march or gathering in 1978. 78, yeah. yeah that, was the, that was the an extraordinary night. Uh, I think there were 55 of us arrested and I was pretty much the last one arrested and one of the first ones out because um, people, who, people with bail funds and that included my parents, in fact, but knew that um, I always gave my real name and address sort of thing. And um, for a lot of gay and straight people who were busted that night, um, and as it proved the next couple of days later in the Sydney Morning Herald, where they published the names and occupations of everyone who was arrested that night and claimed that that was just normal practice, which of course is bullshit. Um, so, as I mentioned, although I was the last arrested virtually, I was the first out and then I had to go out and memorise these various fake names. And so it's <laughs> a method of bailing people out. And actually, mum and dad had a, uh, a little, about three or four hundred dollars in cash to bail me and my friends out at various points. And it was just a little bail fund in, the, in a certain book in the library upstairs where oh, fuck, someone, you know, Chips has been arrested again. Whereabouts? Oh, God, we've got to go down to bloody Maroubra um, to back him out sort of thing. Um, so they were extraordinarily supportive, you know, as, as you can imagine. Um, and, uh, yeah, and that night, I mean, the, the police, uh, and they finally did apologise, I think, last year or the year before, uh, were just totally vicious on that night and just um, were more interested in bashing people up than in arresting people. Um, and being King's Cross where it got to its height, um, you know, regular King's Cross goers started fighting the cops as well, you know, because they could see what was happening. Uh, and some people were, you know, scarred for life, you know, they lost jobs, um, you know, couple of teachers, um, some nurses and various other people lost their jobs as a result. And in the end, the charges were dropped against most people, not against me. Um, yeah, it was a very vicious, vicious night. And um, if I'm still alive, it'd be good to go to the 50th anniversary. <laughs> um, that's a few years off now. What was the, like it was a, it was a, an organised gathering and an, with a permit or no permit or what were you arrest for? Like, I really don't know much about that uh, night at all. It, it was, it was, it was, it was billed as the Mardi Gras and it was just a, a, a street and they did have um, a permit uh, down Oxford Street. And then when it got to um, Hyde Park, people pretty much spontaneously decided they, they'd head up to the cross and up William Street. And the main slogan that was developed as the march was coming down Oxford Street and then certainly much, you know, in greater force as it went up William Street down Darlinghurst Road into the cross, um, which was stop police attacks on gays, women and blacks. And of course, that is exactly what the cops did that night. 
um, you know, quite indiscriminately and, and savagely. Um, and uh, yeah, I did that nearly all of it in bare feet because my thongs broke um, at the top of William Street. <laughs> and so, um, but anyway, it was, uh, it was a thing of its times where you had sort of, you know, extraordinarily uh, corrupt New South Wales police um, and bitterly antipathetic to demonstrations in any case. And to a certain extent, seeing a, a gay march, I think was sort of the last straw for them. And, you know, because it just took them to the very core of their being that, you know, oh, Jesus, there's all these poofters marching now, let's do them over. Hmm. And that's what they attempted to do. The people that I've been speaking to, there's a theme that keeps coming out, which is this idea of like planting a seed for change that may not happen immediately. It may not happen for some years or decades. And mm. it's interesting to hear that story then in, of the context of, um, you know, in 2017, I think it was, um, gay marriage um, was legalised in Australia. So you've gone from, from the experience you've just said and then now almost 40 years later. Um, is this... The is this what continues to give you kind of hope and motivation that you know that doing something now you need that you need the battle you need the struggle you perhaps need the defeat in order for change to occur you know maybe some generations down the track. Oh yeah, I mean I, I think that dialectics, as it were, goes through history. Is that if it weren't for, um, um, well, to be really sort of maybe a bit simplistic about it, but if it weren't for, for people like Martin Luther King um, in the early 60s, um, and we're, now we've still got Donald Trump, still a long way to go, which is why the Black Lives Matter stuff has been so sort of um, important and strident you know, in recent times, because there's always a long way to go. But you're right, there are seeds, and the only thing you can do really is to keep keep going. Yeah. To take an example of someone, you know, like um, you know, Jack Mundy, who died earlier this year, who was a member of the Communist Party and leader of the Builders Labourers Federation, um, who did the first green bans in in the world, you know, i.e. taking strike action to protect the environment. And it was bizarrely, it was in its first outing, was to protect um, some bushland in a nice middle class area, you know, in the north shore of Sydney. Um, but from that, um, green bands, you know, grew and grew. But green bands and green politics are very much. Um, all over the world come from came from the action of those trade unionists back then. Um, filmmakers like you know Pat Fisk, who were making films about you know um, those struggles against developers and you know um, in terms of saving the environment and so on. Um, and yes, there, there's nothing comes from. It just doesn't drop out of the sky. You know, it does involve you know long struggles um, and you know if if you can be a propagandist for doing that um, that's fine by me mm -hmm. and you use this word propagandist I love it 
Um, I'm just curious whether you would use that in place of the word activist for yourself. Is it sort of the same thing or is there a difference between these two? Oh, you can be an activist um, and you're, um, you're a propagandist by your actions, you know, whether it's a, a sit-in or tying yourself to a tree or um, not registering, you know, for the conscription and so on. Um, I guess I'm using propaganda in a sort of a somewhat narrower thing to describe, you know, um, writing words, visual um, outlets, you know, again, whether that's, you know, a piece of graffiti on a wall through to, um, uh, to a movie, to a film, documentary, the sort of work that you're involved with. Um, I always loved a line that was on the front lawn at Sydney Uni back in the anti-Vietnam days is, you know, it's better to be a propagandist than a proper goose. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, I, it's funny. I actually use that. I use this word propaganda for my own filmmaking in a way. Um, <laughs> not actively, but, but some people say, oh, you know, I'm independent. So therefore, that gives us some sort of credibility more. And it's like, well, hang on a second. It's still my propaganda. You know, like every, the maker or the creator or the person with the vision of, of anything still has their, their message that they, that they want to get across. So that resonates a lot. That's probably why I'm, I'm sticking with that point. I'm interested to, <laughs> yeah. to hear yeah. more about it. And what about 2020 and, and, and the role of artists and propagandists, if that's a, if that's a word? Is art and propaganda still playing as um, important a role in change and in social and political movements? Uh, I think hugely. Um, and, and the propaganda that's in the hands of the um, COVID-19 denialists as well. Um, you know, there's sort of, you know, conspiracy theories around 5G um, and, and stuff like that. Those are forms of propaganda as well, um, you know, to try and take people's attention away, for example, from, you know, a lot of the root causes of why COVID-19 has hit so many places so badly. And, you know, case in point are the aged care homes um, in you know, New South Wales and Victoria, um, which have become, allowed to become these sort of uh, centres of, of um, private profit rather than of care. Um, and I think, you know, th this is a huge sort of potential boost to, in fact, um, deprivatising, um, you know, qu quite a lot of things in society because they've been demonstrated really clearly that not, they, they don't just not work, but they also kill people. Um, and as we know from all over the world, the people, it's, it was spread initially by people with money who could afford to travel around the world and stuff like that. Um, and that includes rich Chinese tourists, as well as rich Americans, you know, but um, the way uh, it's, it's been dealt with just shows that well, the way it's happened is that it's overwhelmingly affecting um, 
poor people. And people who are poor will have underlying conditions, other morbidities, which you know, this particular virus um, makes people very susceptible, uh, which is why in the context of the Northern Territory, um, the fears around um, COVID-19 um, uh, you know, getting into Aboriginal communities who already have the kinds of conditions, you know, diabetes, um, cardiovascular disease, and so on, plus massively overcrowded housing, are just sort of almost scripted for COVID-19 to, to deal with really savagely. Um, and it happened, though, not as for as long as we're extensively back in you know, swine fever a decade or so ago, where the death rate among Aboriginal people was much higher than the general population. And that's where, in the current context, the Aboriginal community-controlled organisations have been using propaganda in ways better than the government ever has been able to. Uh, you'll note yourself from being in Melbourne where there is ongoing criticism of the non-delivery of public health information in migrant languages, especially migrant groups you know, that are fairly recent to Australia, but also among you know, Italians, for example, um, and how absolutely poorly the communications have been. Whereas in the Northern Territory in particular, uh, Aboriginal organisations have taken it on themselves um, very much to get material translated into language. Um, and, you know, as music videos, as informational videos, as posters, as T-shirts, um, you know, and, and that was that was starting to happen in um, late March. Now, you know, at some stage, I'd really like to see the data on when, he, when any Australian government started producing stuff in migrant languages. My suspicion is not until at least mid-April, if not later. And they're still fucking it up, as was found in Melbourne just last week. Did you see that last week? They, they realised there were all these mistakes due to bureaucrats using Google Translate to translate languages and, yep. and just coming up with nonsense, basically. Oh, and um, producing something, stuff in Farsi for Arabic-speaking uh, audiences. Yeah. And just because it's a very similar alphabet, oh, yeah, that must be Arabic. Yeah, pump it out to them. Um, <laughs> it's just been... Iran, Iraq, one, one letter difference, yeah, assume yeah. the same language, yeah, were, but not. They all look the same and they don't speak English, the fuckers. <laughs> so, so, but you've beautifully put it. It, it, it. it seems that in difficult times, it's, it, it's like people rise to the occasion, if that makes sense, rather than governments and rather than elected officials. Um, it, yeah, and I, and I think that I think that comes down to a really old word. Uh, I think it might originally be French, but the word solidarity is where that comes out in the face of adversity. Um, and there are millions of stories around the world of neighbours reaching out to each other, um, you know, to help each other, knocking the door and sort of saying, look, you know, do you need the shopping done or, you know, whatever. Um, just at that very communal sort of level, that solidarity is really spelt out. Um, and also, stuff that's still developing, but, you know, um, among health workers, you know, looking out for each other and so on. And again, there's this um, fantastic propaganda, again, being produced as posters and so on by 
the American equivalent, I can't remember what it's called, of the Australian Nursing Foundation, where they've been producing posters which are aimed at solidarity with health workers, with nurses, with allied health workers, with doctors and so on. Because, um, you know, they've in so many ways been the front line. But then there's also the unsung heroes, as words, you know, the drivers and the, you know, people on, on the telephones and stuff who are working their rings off um, to sort of try and defeat this uh, problem and these series of problems. Um, you, 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 you have this amazing ability to be able to cover, yeah, to, to be across so many, so many issues. Yeah, um, and, but as to people like you, I mean, it's that thing of, you know, not hiding from the world. Yeah. I mean, if I'm critical of some artists, is that it's they, I mean, they may produce beautiful things, but um, they're disconnected in a, in a, a sort of, uh, in, in their own bubbles, in their own universe. Um, and don't appear to notice anything happening around them. Um, and I, I just, I'm not built that way. Um, you know, I find it much easier to, I don't know, respond to things as they happen and, you know, hope you don't fuck them up. But mm. if you do, try and fix it up later. <laughs> and do you see that the role of art is to be political and the role of art is to engage and to provoke and to be propaganda or is there also a place for art for art's sake? I think things can be both, you know, not often. Um, but, I mean, I think some of the pieces of work by Therese Ritchie, for example, are extraordinarily beautiful, but they're also really confronting. Um, and, you know, they, they can be both. And, I mean, yes, it is the role of artists and crafters and so on, you know, and, and filmmakers for that matter, um, you know, not to shy away from creating things that are beautiful and in a sense for their own sake. Um, but by the same token, um, there are times when you have to say things and be blunt about, you know, what it is you're here in the world for. Um, and it's not to produce necessarily, you know, another diamond brooch for um, Her Majesty the Queen. Um, and, you know, I, I guess that's where I draw the line. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you're talking about your work with Therese Ritchie. Um, it directs me to a project, I think, called Get Well Soon, a diagnosis from 2014, um, which for me is a totally intriguing and unique um, project and art exhibition. Can you, can you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, I mean, that was, um, that was a project we, all right, back in 2010, we had a, a sort of retrospective of our work, which we called Not Dead Yet. But we had been thinking for some time because she was very much involved with um, uh, around producing health materials uh, about, um, for example, uh, education stuff around, um, you know, organ donation. You know, which and one of the particular areas of that, where until very recently, Aboriginal people on um, dialysis, the chances of them getting a, um, a, 
transplant were a fraction of the chances for a white fella. Um, you know, people like you and I. Um, so we came up with the idea of getting well-known Australians um, and put them on dialysis. So we produced an Im uh, 14 images, including one of each of us, um, all on the machine to put the view that, you know, their lives would not be possible if they were spending five hours a day, three days a week on this fucking machine. So we put people like, um, you know, Tony Abbott and Archbishop Pell and John Howard, um, various odds and sods, you know, on dialysis. Um, and we also included, you know, the singer Paul Kelly and um, uh, the female actor. Uh, Kate Blanchard. Yeah, Kate Blanchard. <laughs> we put them on the machine as well. Um, and we made them look as beautiful as possible. You know, like they're on the fucking dialysis machine. They're rigged up to various stuff and, um, and you know, we weren't making caricatures of them. They were, you know, realistic images of them on dialysis. And it was very much about, um, yeah, their lives would not be possible um, if they were similarly afflicted. Um, there were some, some things that I discovered that was extraordinary um, about chronic kidney disease and um, in Aboriginal communities. Uh, kidney disease is experienced in remote areas of Australia at 30 times the national rate. And Aboriginal people are 7 to 11 times more likely to die from chronic, chronic kidney disease. This is extraordinary. Those, those figures haven't got any better in the last five years since, since you know, that information. Um, came out and and I guess it comes down to probably it wasn't on for long um, we sold very few of them because you can you can imagine it not many people would like to have a a portrait of Archbishop Pell on a dialysis machine sitting in their lounge room um, the people who really liked the show were dialysis patients who came and saw it and dialysis nurses who um, came and saw it and they just really loved it and um, it's a pity we just uh, it's partly my fault because I was heading back to um, Palermo that we just didn't get our shit together to tour it but mm. um, it, it's there online somewhere and and um, what's the um, without going too deep into it why are these statistics the case why you know is 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 uh, Aboriginal 30 times more more prone to getting chronic kidney disease than, than you or I? Uh, the same reason why if it hits Aboriginal communities, COVID-19 is going to take out, take more lives. And it's because of social determinants. And that means housing, um, you know, is, is a major thing. Um, diet, employment, um, education, all the things that you know, various politicians for some years now have talked about closing various gaps on, when there's been very, very little movement at all in on across most of those measures, high rates of imprisonment, um, you know, especially juvenile imprisonment. You know, all the things that, as I mentioned earlier, talking about COVID nineteen around the world, COVID nineteen is killing people whose social determinants make them vulnerable. Um, 
to uh, you know this latest pandemic and so on. Um, and if you look at the countries that have the um, non-developed nations or underdeveloped nations, how you want to class them, the ones that have got good health systems, public health systems, have done far better than uh, the United States, for example, because um, its public health system is, you know, chronically ill. Uh, and, um, and, you know, we're doing well in Australia, comparatively speaking, because we've got a reasonably good public health system. Um, it's still not as good if you come from you know, poorer backgrounds. Yeah. But I mean, it's showing the most vulnerable and it's not even just on racial or, you know, um, cultural lines. It's, you know, in Melbourne where I am now, it's, it's, it's the elderly care homes, you know, it's, it's most vulnerable in, yeah. in so many ways. Yeah. Um, and when I, I came to visit you last year in um, Alice Springs, the, one of the main things that I was so shocked about just walking around the town was you, you mentioned um, diet that that was something that was just appalling to me when I when I you know saw people that yep. obviously are struggling and and with big buckets of Kentucky Fried Chicken and and chips and and yep. you know it's it's just yep. it, it's like anything I the mean, most the, the most vulnerable or the most the people that are that that can't deal with these issues are the ones that are always the the most impacted. Oh, and things like Kentucky Fried is the cheapest yep. um, form of uh, protein and carbohydrate intake. Um, you know, it's, it's just the way it is. Um, and, you know, sort of mass-produced crap, which um, makes people ill in the long term, you know, leads to obesity. Guess what? Obesity is a um, condition which makes you more vulnerable to um, kidney disease. And COVID nineteen, um, you know, so it, it just feeds on itself. It's just a, um, a crazy world we live in, where it's cheaper to feed your family chicken and chips than it is a salad sandwich. You know, that's the exactly, and cheaper to drink Coca Cola than bottled water. Yeah, um, huh. you know, which is oh, it's, a, it's a fucked world. <laughs> It's a fucked world, but you're doing a pretty good job of trying to navigate it and make sense of it and leave, let's try and unfuck it, leave an impact, you know, um, and that's a beautiful segue to, because we're talking about food and diet. Um, you and I met in Palermo, you and I met in the Vucheria, which is the oldest market area um, in, in Palermo of where you were very comfortable um most days sitting in the street eating and drinking and talking to the locals in fair to say limited uh, limited italian but but you were really embraced by the by the local community and just wonder if you can talk about what you were doing there and and the sort of the for your life and the projects and, and this relationship to to the market and the fresh food i mentioned earlier that i haven't done much travel you know, as a younger person, apart from, you know, when I was a kid. But from about 93 onwards, you know, if I did do overseas travel, one of the things I would make sure I'd do is just go to one place rather than, you know, if it's Tuesday, it's Belgium. If it's Wednesday, it's, you know, um, France or whatever. Um, because I don't think you can get any real notion of where you are if, if you're just constantly on the move. 
And I first went to Palermo, actually only for two days. I was, I was living uh, for a while in uh, Reggio in Calabria. Um, and I thought I'd really like to come back here. And so I did in 2005 for nearly three months and again in 2007 for close to three months. And then uh, when my father died in 2013, my sister rings me and sort of says, oh, well, you know, uh, there's not enough money to you know, be rich on, but there's probably enough money to sort of take a year off work. So I ended up stretching that to four years. Um, and very quickly on, you know, I mean, I, I, bro I broke my visa all the time. You're supposed to only stay there for three months and go away for three months, but I never bothered about that. So I rented a place in Palermo in, in the Butcheria. Uh, and that was my base for the best part of four years um, in between some trips back to Australia uh, for exhibitions. And I don't know if I was expecting anything much, but I just decided I'd just hang in. And, you know, you're immediately identified as a foreigner, but I'd like to think by the end of it, you know, I was at least their foreigner. Um, and I mean, you know, Southern Italians, there's this sort of extraordinarily friendly in any case, you know, you can be walking down a street and total strangers will go, you know, salve, buongiorno, etc. Um, and particularly in the old parts, you know, you were living in across in Balloro, um, the, there's that thing of a strong thing of community, you know, which only might be sort of a, a square kilometre um, and might only house a couple of thousand people or something, but everyone knows each other, is related to each other, um, you know, like, like um, I mean, the reason why there are so many diminutives and so on for, you know, personal first names is, you know, you, you usually name your eldest son after your grandfather. And in a small community, it means there's so many people called Salvatore that, you know, there's all these sort of nicknames and other names and variations on, you know, that particular name and so on. And, if, and of course, having a weird name like Chips was... <laughs> of amusement, especially among kids, when you translated what it meant um, uh, into Italian. Um, but I, got, I did get very close to, um, you know, people at, at some particular bars and, um, you know, Chateria and Datoto in particular. And then it actually started with an image I'd done in Australia of a threatened, threatened bird uh, species in Kakadu, uh, which I did as a sort of fundraising print to fund more research out of Charles Darwin University into that particular bird and its habitat and so on. And I printed out a couple just to see what they'd look like. And I thought, oh, I'll paste it up. So I pasted it up with their permission, not that it was their wall, um, of Datoto. And people really liked it. And then I did another couple and another couple and then other local businesses would sort of say, oh, look, come over here, you know, we, we sell meat here. How about doing some images of meat and so on? So I think by the time you got there, I'd sort of, you know, I had stuff all over the joints. And it was amazing because, you know, no cops, no business owners, no council stopping you. And in fact, people welcoming it and then, you know, 
you'd be going out at, at one stage at least once a week, um, you know, at best once a fortnight to do another paste up. And people would stop and watch it and make comments on it and, and so on. So it was, and some of them were, uh, in a sense, decorative or, or just describing the business. Like, you know, there was a, um, uh, what do you call it, a, a panel beater, you know, that I did, I invented a uniform for him and a, you know, and a jacket for him. And um, likewise with a, um, a, a bar up the road that I did stuff for and so on. But also then I was also starting to work on my work around fresh food in the market. So, you know, I'd be, as I was producing those, I'd paste them up as well in, in the market areas. And for I think three years in a row, I did a Christmas poster, which I'd paste up around the, the district. And, and uh, people would just sort of say, no, no, put it on my wall, you know, put it here. Sort of thing. <laughs> so it's such a different sort of place to be pasting stuff up. And then later on, um, doing some paste ups in other parts of town, uh, again, at the invitation of, of those neighbourhoods. Um, so it was, it was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, I, I worked my ring off on producing the images. So it wasn't as if I was just sitting around idly drinking wine at the restaurant. <laughs> Do you see art as a way of, I mean, you, you said that the communities are really open and embracing people and that's absolutely true but I mean my own back, family background is from southern Italy I know that um, before embracing there can also be real skepticism and sort of um, of strangers of outsiders um, once you're in you're in but it's sometimes hard to to break that barrier did is art for you also a way of interacting and engaging with local people where perhaps even you don't have the language to to communicate I think that certainly helped me in that context. And that certainly helped me when I spent um, a couple of months, 10 years ago in Beirut, where um, again, I started doing portraits of the people um, who at the place where I was staying. And so, you know, they got involved with their own portraits or talking about the portraits of, you know, other staff members and so on. So yes, I mean, it is, can be a way of engaging for sure. Um, but I think it also sort of says stuff about, you know, um, that you're not there to be, uh, what's the word? You're not there just to harvest personal experiences and go away. Um, that you know, you used the term earlier about you know sowing seeds and so on. Um, you know, it'd be nice to think that you know the seeds you've sown um, by what you've done, you know, can survive and grow. Mm. Uh, for example, in that one area down our laneway, um, which just used to get full of rubbish and so on. So we, um, me and Bernadette, started sort of planting lemon trees and orange trees in that little laneway to sort of um and and in one case a children's story that i wrote about pigeons of all things um and so people were you know taking an active a more active role in stopping rubbish in that particular area 
um, and getting onto the council if you know people were dumping things that were too difficult to remove. And then another mural painter did some work on another wall, just you know, another little alleyway. Um, so, uh, and then of course, I mean, the street art in Palermo is fantastic, and, and you know, there's this uh, camaraderie around it, um, and there's people from all over the world who who do street art there. And you know, there's all these unwritten rules about not covering other people's work unless they've been there for you know, a good two or three years. And, and and there are also things you know you can commemorate things like the patron saint of um, Palermo, uh, Santa Rosalia. Um, I produced a number of images over those years of her, and in particular when there was that terrorist attack in attack in Barcelona in. Was it 2018, maybe 17? Um, and did a sort of diptych of the patron saint of Barcelona and the patron saint of um, of Palermo together uh, with a thing in, in Italian saying, you know, solidarity with Barcelona. Mm. Um, and um, an Australian artist who was visiting who's got that expertise, she put sort of... Um, gold leaf on the halo around the um, the Spanish saint. And there's just no way um, that anyone was going to touch that, you know, like it was looked after and uh, people would take photographs of it. And then of course, as you know, got involved with doing paste up murals of kids in the area. And although I said it is a community, it's also a series of communities kids, little gangs of kids, I guess. So, you know, I do a paste up of one gang and then the next gang and say, well, what about us, you know? <laughs> so, so it was sort of quite wearing actually <laughs> towards the end, of, you know, all these kids just wanting to be pasted up on the wall. Oh, I mean, yeah, obviously that's where we met and we spent a lot of time, I, I was carrying your paste and taking photos for you and things sure. like this. So. <laughs> You know, you made a huge yeah. impact. And I, I think, um, you know, maybe we should, uh, let's look at, at finishing on that, that sort of that sentence that you said about sort of planting seeds. And the, I wanted to ask you one final question. You've got a hell of a lot of life and art and propaganda still in you. However, what's the, if there'll be an end of the day at some stage, what would be the one thing or multiple things that you would most like to either be remembered for or have left some sort of legacy of your life? Oh, I think as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, there's been three or four images which will outlive me, which is, you know, fine. Um, and, um, you know, so they'll, you know, be reproduced and reimagined, you know, down the years sort of thing. And some of them, you know, that's already happened too. Um, I think, you know, what, what I'd be most like to be remembered for is um, embracing languages other than English uh, in the graphic work that I've done. Because I think that as I mentioned right at the beginning, you know, I came from a very monolingual childhood, was introduced to the existence of all these other languages. And I ran into this Polish chef here the other day and I just realised I 
um, and I thanked him in Polish and he was sort of completely bowled over because there are no other Poles in Central Australia in fuck all in Australia for that matter. <laughs> and so, and I don't know where it came from. I just went back to my childhood and suddenly I knew how to say thank you in Polish. <laughs> so uh, and I've never done a poster in Polish, mind you, but um, maybe one day. <laughs> it's super interesting. I, I would interpret that and interpret you and interpret um, my time with you as being respectful. That is because it, it's the opposite of thinking that you put yourself above anybody else and you know expecting others to know your language and... and um... You're not there to harvest other people. You're there to plant seeds with, with them. Brilliant. Well, I very much look forward to a whole lot of planting seeds. Just as much as that, I very much look forward to sharing a glass of wine with you in Palermo. Yes, a bottle of Nero Davila would be beautiful. A bottle of Nero Davila would be beautiful. So I say, uh, I say, chin chin and salute. And ci vediamo. Ci vediamo. Thanks so much, Chips. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. And uh, take care of yourself, mate. Thanks, brother. You too. And to all your family and friends in Melbourne, it must be shit at the moment, but you'll get through it. Thank you. It is, but we will. Thank you. Okay, stay safe. Cheers, mate. Likewise. Bye. Many thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen and subscribe to make sure you don't miss an episode. And go to aliminalspace.earth to access all episodes available as both video and audio podcasts. But for now, many thanks again. And see you next time in a liminal space. <music>